My name is Alex Culpepper. I'm the next-gen pastor here at Village Church, and uh, it's my joy to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Now, before we get too far, I want to talk to you about a movie. Uh, So there's this guy named Ricky Gervais. Uh, You may have heard of him before. So if you know about the sitcom The Office that was on TV for like 10 years, he actually wrote the original British Office. So he's like a comedian, and uh, we got we got the office from him and all, all that stuff. So he's like, he's a funny guy, you know. But what you don't know about Ricky Gervais, maybe, is that he actually doesn't like Christians very much at all. And in 2009, uh, he starred in a movie called The Invention of Lying. Now, uh, in this movie, he plays this character who lives in a world where people can only ever tell the truth. That's all that they can do. They can only ever tell the truth. But this, this character that he plays is the one guy in the whole world that somehow mysteriously has the ability to lie. And so, uh, so we see him going around and like sort of making feel, people feel better with his lies because everybody's like brutally honest with each other, right? And so, uh, so he finds himself uh, sitting next to a woman on her deathbed. And uh, she believes, quote, the truth in this world that when she dies, she will be in an eternity of nothingness. And she is very afraid of this eternity of nothingness. And so, uh, so they frame it as if he tells her a lie that when she dies, she's going to go to a much happier place. Uh, a, a place where uh, she will not be hindered, um, a place where she will get sort of the things that she wants, a place where she's just going to be happy. She's going to a good place when she dies. She's not actually going to an eternity of nothingness. And, and what happened? So he tells her this quote lie, and she dies with a happy smile on her face. He makes this woman happy as she's passing away. The basic concept is, uh, that he's trying to get across with this, is that the idea of an afterlife is just a really convenient lie that makes people feel better. Now, that should be offensive to us, right? That should be offensive to Christians uh, because uh, this is actually a key part of our faith, right? The idea of life after death. Now, part of uh, Ricky's goal in making this movie was to sort of make a laughing stock of Christians and in some ways to pity them, to say, oh, you know, they just say that to make themselves feel better. But let's, uh, let's talk about for a second how we can typically conceptualize the afterlife, how we typically think and talk about the afterlife. We talk about it as if it's like a better place or a good place or some sort of ideal society. And all of those things might be true, but oftentimes those ideas that we have are grounded in our own personal desires for what we think heaven should look like. They're grounded in our own personal desires, our own ideas. And so I think sometimes like we can think of heaven like it's maybe some sort of eternal retirement, right? Uh, So we've been poking fun the last few weeks at people who ride motorcycles. So I'm gonna keep poking fun at the motorcycle people, like, right? Like the thing that you're gonna get to do, you're gonna get to just ride your motorcycle all day 
in heaven. Like you're just gonna ride through the streets of heaven on your motorcycle. Or I had an uncle, uh, yeah, yeah, Jeff's, Jeff's all for it, man. He's like, he's really, he's really jumping in there. Or uh, I had an uncle who, uh, who had passed away. And so uh, the way that we talked about him being in heaven, the way that my family discussed it, well, he was, uh, he was a fisherman. He spent a lot of time fishing. And so we just talked about, oh, he's just up there, you know, fishing his days away in heaven. Right, so like they, these are things that we do, like these hobbies that we have, these are things that we do, like we dream of doing these when we're retired, right? And so like we can talk, like we can talk about heaven like it's this place where we get to do sort of the things that we like to do the rest of our life. And so when people hear about this and they tell us, uh, oh, you just say that to make yourself feel better. Well, it's possible that there might just be like a little tiny kernel of truth in what they're saying to us. Now, the idea of the Christian afterlife is not actually grounded in human ideas about our own preferred fantasy world. Uh, so can you imagine if, if the afterlife was, like, was grounded in sort of what everybody wants? So everybody, you just get what you want at the end of the day. So like when you die, you, you get the things that you want. Now I'm like, you know what I want from life? I want no conflict. That's what I want from life. You know what happens when everybody gets what they want? That you get a whole lot of conflict, okay? So I'm not happy in this version of heaven that we're all coming up with where everybody gets what they want because there's a whole lot of conflict in this heaven. Now, the, the doctrine of the Christian afterlife or, or glorification, that's our doctrine today, glorification, it's grounded in the actual historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of glorification, our idea of life after death is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says something along the lines of, if living in Christ only gives us a hope of life here on earth, then, then we should be pitied more than anyone else. But if Christ has actually been raised to life, then so will we who have faith in him. This is basically what Paul says. If Jesus is not alive, then the idea of life after death is a convenient lie, something we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. But he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, and when it says first fruits, it's if, if it happened to him and we follow him, then it will happen to us. So he goes before us and whatever happens to him, we get to take part in as well. So the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Village Church, the good news, the simple gospel for us this morning is that the one who died to justify us, the one who sent his Holy Spirit to sanctify us is, is in fact alive and we take our cue from him. If he's alive, then we too shall be alive. So I can look at a guy like our friend Ricky and, and say, you know what, you're right. 
this version of life after death that people talk about is pretty ridiculous. It doesn't actually make sense. It's impossible because it's grounded in human ideas and differing human ideas. It's not grounded in anything concrete, just what it makes particular people happy. But the life after death that Christians believe in is grounded in something much, much different. So if you could this morning, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just gonna review a little bit, um, go through what we've been talking about the last few weeks. So we're in this series called Doctrines You Can't Afford to Get Wrong. So we've been talking about, uh, we talked about the first week, the simple gospel. Just the simple fact that, that Christ came to earth, that he died for sins and that he was raised from the dead. And people actually witnessed this happen. Like it, it was a historical event that took place. And then we talked about justification. How uh, when I place my faith in Jesus, though I am a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus offers to me his righteousness. So that when God sees me, he doesn't actually see me as a sinner, but he sees me as holy, righteous, and perfect because of the sacrifice of Jesus and not because of anything that I have done. And we talked about the doctrine of sanctification or how we become the kind of people that God desires us to be. And this week we're talking about glorification or the doctrine of life after death for the individual Christian. Now we've been talking about these things in terms of tiers. So you have tier three issues, which are, are things that a lot of Christians kind of disagree upon and you can, you can have differing opinions. This might be like exactly when Christ is going to come or, or something like that or uh, whether it's before the, uh, the, the tribulation or after the tribulation. They're, they're, these are like tier three issues. We can all be in fellowship and in the same church and just love each other. Um, on tier three issues. Then you have tier two issues. Tier two issues are, are things that are of a higher priority maybe and we can be in fellowship with them but we're gonna be really, really clear that these two tier two issues are important to us. So I can still share fellowship. I can share Christian fellowship though with people who differ from me on tier two issues. This might be something like Calvinism and Arminianism in some circumstances. I know that I get some people who are like, really? Yeah. Um, okay, so that's tier two. And then tier one issues are issues you cannot get wrong. If you get these issues wrong, then you are denying something about the Orthodox Christian faith and you cannot consider yourself to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. So, uh, so justification, tier one issue, absolutely. I cannot get to heaven based on anything that I have done. I cannot earn salvation. I cannot become righteous based on any of my own works. It's all about what Jesus did. That's justification. You can't get that one wrong. The simple gospel that Jesus died for sins, that he was raised from the dead, you cannot get that one wrong. Now, sanctification, there are different models and modes of sanctification. So we put that one in tier two, where you can kind of disagree on how this happens. We don't disagree that it happens, but you can disagree on how it happens and still share fellowship. This week, glorification, we are putting this in the category of tier one, which means you cannot afford to get this one wrong. Now, we'll talk about what exactly that looks like later on. But in 1 Corinthians 15, so this is the passage that we're in. I, hope, I think you've had plenty of time to get there now. I've been like chatting away up here. Um, so, Paul wrote this passage and he is writing uh, as an argument and specifically in chapter 15, he's writing it as an argument against a particular 
group of people. Uh, in the Corinthian church, there was this influencing philosophy called cynicism. And uh, cynicism is where we get our word cynic from. So people who kind of have this like um, bleak view of the world and it eventually morphed into stoicism. But this is what cynicism says. It says, this life is it. This body is all that you have. So just go ahead and do what you want. The basic idea here is that you might as well just like live it up right now. Live however you want because this body is all you have. This is, this is your only shot. And so what becomes clear is that this philosophy had some significant level of influence in the Corinthian church. So all of chapter 15, Paul is going on the offensive against this particular philosophy. And so he starts with the simple gospel. Uh, so when we, we covered this a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim took us through the very beginning of chapter 15. And, uh, and it, he just talks about how Christ died and was raised from the dead and was seen by over 500 witnesses, that this was an event that actually happened and it changes everything. And then he goes on and begins talking about life after death. And um, I wanna put you inside the mind of the cynic, uh, the person who is influenced by cynicism. For them, the concept of life after death, it made absolutely no sense. Uh, because in their mind, the body, it decays and it goes into the ground and there's no life left in it. There is nothing left in it. And so they look at the human body that is an actively like decaying thing from the minute you bo you're born, like you start dying, right? So they, they observe this reality and kind of like our friend Ricky, they say that, that sounds nice, but it doesn't make any sense because I observe what's happening to the body and I can't see anything good that that is going to become. So before we get to point one in your notes, I need to apologize ahead of time. If you have not seen the movie, The Princess Bride, uh, then I'm going to encourage you strongly. You should really see this movie. It will change your life. Uh, but uh, but uh, this, the point one in your notes is from uh, The Princess Bride and it is this, inconceivable inconceivable. So uh, everybody, you get a, get a little chuckle there, right? So, uh, so this is what Paul is doing. He's looking at these people who cannot possibly understand the, life the possibility of life after death. And, and, and he's looking at them and he's saying, it is, in your mind, inconceivable. And so he says in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You know, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're looking at Paul and they're saying, okay, Paul, life after death, whatever. But like, these bodies are like disappearing. So what kind of body are they gonna have, Paul? How, how are they gonna actually come up out of the ground, Paul? And so Paul looks at them and he's, he's anticipating their arguments. He's looking at his opponents. They're saying to him, Paul, this makes no sense. This is impossible. This is inconceivable. And Paul's problem with them is that they're not thinking outside of the box. Their picture is very, very limited because they're just looking at the, the human flesh, the human body. And so Paul says to them in verse 36, he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So he's talking about sowing here. He's talking about farming, talking about planting seeds in the ground. He says, you gotta put the seed in the ground and it's gotta die in, in order to become something else. It doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's just a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So he's using this illustration of farming to communicate with his objectors. 
So just imagine, like, would you ever look at a kernel of wheat? If you had no prior context, would you look at a kernel of wheat that you would put into the ground and, and would you expect it to look like it looks? I mean, there's no way. You can't possibly anticipate what it's going to look like. So I have a little experiment here to see if we can anticipate some things. We have some seeds that we're gonna throw up on the screen here. Now this first set of seeds, you probably see these pretty often uh, during the fall or whatever, they're the little helicopters, that's what we like to call them. The, they float down to the ground, right? So um, there might be some people who actually know what kind of uh, plant this becomes. I imagine that there are. So uh, let's see, what, what does it become? Uh, oh yes, a tree, that's very good, but a specific kind of tree. A Japanese maple tree. That's what it becomes, a Japanese maple tree. Okay, so let's throw some other seeds up there and see if we can, now try, just look at these seeds. Just try, oh, that's, that's a, Nikki, it's a really nice try. <laughs> it's a ni I'll give you credit for trying. All right, let's throw it up there. Let's see what it becomes. Uh, that's another tree. It's called a dragon's blood tree. Those are dragon's blood seeds. That's a dragon's blood tree. How about these? Let's throw these up. There's a theme here. So maybe it is a tree. So like, can we like maybe guess what these become by looking at them? Can we maybe like conceptualize? Well, okay, sure. <laughs> a tree. Let's throw it up there. Let's see what it, California redwood. That's what those tiny seeds become. Is there any way that you could look at those seeds and imagine that they would become that? The, the, the two things are so different from each other. It's completely unexpected. And so it's really hard to anticipate what the, the plant's gonna look like by looking at the seed. So here's something interesting. In order for these things to actually grow, you have to be really careful and really intentional about what you do with the seed. You have to like plant it in the right soil. You have to care for it. You have to make sure it has the right amount of sun and the right amount of water and all of this stuff. And part of the Corinthian problem is that cynicism said that what you do with your body, this seed that God has given us, it doesn't matter because this life is all that there is. And that's honestly how the Corinthian church becomes the most immoral church that Paul writes to. Paul says to them, your body is like a seed. And even though you can't see what it's going to become right now, it has the possibility to become something far grander than you would expect. And so how are you going to sow this seed that God has given you, this body? Are you gonna sow it in holiness and righteousness through sanctification? Or are you going to sow it into sexual immorality, into drunkenness, and into your own personal desires? But Paul's point is this. If you look at the seed, you can't begin to imagine what it's going to become. And yet, if you sow it properly, it transforms into something completely unexpected. Okay, verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. You see what Paul's doing here is he's emphasizing something. 
He says, you got different types of things going on. These things are all different from each other. His emphasis here is like he's looking at all of these things and they all have a level of difference. They're all actually significantly different from each other. So you heard the the Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong, right? That's, yeah, we're, uh, we're familiar, parents are familiar with that song. Okay, so he's talking about like all of these things that are very, very different from each other. They're vastly different from each other and he's doing this to build towards a point. So let's go on in verse 42 to see what the point is. He says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul continues this emphasis on difference to the extent that you can't possibly imagine one of these things coming from the other one, right? So like you cannot imagine something imperishable coming from something that's perishable. Just like you could never possibly imagine the tree coming from the tiny seed. And this is what Paul's doing. It's actually starting to hint at what category of difference that we're talking about. So he talks about the perishable, something that's not so good, to the imperishable, something that is wonderful, something in dishonor raised to glory, something in weakness raised to power, something that's bad to something that's really, really good. Verse 45 says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And he goes on to complete this comparison between what we are and what the man of heaven is what the first Adam is and what the second Adam is, what the worst part is and what the better part is. So in our bodies, this is what he's saying, in our bodies we inherit the realities of the first Adam. So we inherit the physical, the mental, and the emotional realities of bodies that are birthed into death and corruption and sin. So just take some time, like just let's, let's reflect on the last week, the last seven days. In what ways did the realities of being born into a corrupted body hinder you? In what ways? I'll tell you mine. So like my first one is I gain weight a little bit faster than I would prefer to. Okay. That's my first one. My second one is I had a root canal this week. Okay. That's, it's not an enjoyable process, just so you know. If anybody was wondering, I'd like to confirm that for you right now. But I also got confronted with my own selfishness in a conversation that I had. I also had to deal with my own personal fear and anxiety. So this is what I want to do. I actually want to do an activity. Uh, I want everyone, if you, you grab something to write with 
uh, or maybe you can just think about it, but I, I, I want everybody to, to participate here. So I want you to write something down. I want you to take a, a few seconds here to write down one or two ways that it is apparent to you that this week, uh, yes, I was born into a corrupted world and a corrupted body. So take, take a, a few seconds to write that down. Think about what that might be. Okay, hold on to it and just keep it in the back of your head. I wanna ask you a question. Can you imagine a version of yourself that never ever has to experience the reality of that corruption again? See, because in our resurrection bodies, this passage actually says that we inherit the realities of the second Adam. The second Adam, when it's talking about up here, the man of heaven, it's talking about Jesus. That in our resurrection bodies, the the one who was the first fruits, the one who went before us, we inherit something that actually should have seemed like an impossibility, something that should have been inconceivable, something that people could not understand. Now, here's the the struggle is that um, Every time in scripture somebody goes to heaven or somebody has an experience of going to heaven, they they can't actually describe what they saw. They can't put it into words that we can relate to. It's like this this place where they um, experience uh, everything, this this world wiped away from sin. When they go to this place, they they can't put into words how best to describe it. So Paul, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4, he says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So he's gone up into paradise. And whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. God knows. But this, he says this, and he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's like this, this world that he went to is so vastly different from everything that we experience right now that we can't even begin to conceptualize it. That he can't even say the words to describe it. So can you imagine like Lazarus after he had been raised by Jesus and all of these people around him and say, hey Lazarus, what was heaven like? What was it like? And Lazarus, like he wants to be able to tell them so, so bad what it was like, but he can't. He doesn't have the right words to describe it, because it's so, so different that it should seem like an impossibility. It's a lived reality that we don't even have categories for. So Paul says this in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul looks at his objectors and says, yes, you're right. 
It doesn't make sense. This perishable body, it does not inherit what is imperishable. These things are so different from each other that that it's actually impossible for one of them to become the other. It should seem impossible. It should be inconceivable. Nothing about this corrupted flesh can possibly produce something glorious. But we are not the primary inheritors. Those of us who are born into the perishable, there is one who has gone before us, who is the first fruits of the resurrection to glory, who offers his inheritance freely to anyone who trusts in him. So what was formerly impossible, because these two things are so different from each other, is now possible through Jesus. Verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The point, because Jesus won, we win. Because Jesus won, we win. So point two in your notes. I don't think that word means what you think it means, talking about glorification here. So we got our friend Inigo up here. So I am, I am Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, okay, cool. Sorry, I had to get out of that a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So it says mystery. He says, I tell you a mystery. So this is what a mystery is. A mystery is a hidden thing, something that's hidden that you anticipate being revealed. Something that's hidden that you anticipate being revealed. Okay, so uh, this is a mystery in two ways. Number one, because something impossible is taking place, right? So, so the perishable should not be able to become imperishable, but something impossible is gonna take place. Paul is saying, I tell you a mystery. Even though it's impossible, it could be possible. Mystery number two, this is, this is whenever the New Testament uses the word mystery, It's actually referencing something else. It's talking about the revelation and full inheritance of the Son of God. So whenever anybody in the New Testament talks about mystery, it's looking at the Old Testament, at these things that were waiting to be revealed until Jesus came. And so it's a reference to Jesus. So somehow something impossible is going to take place in Jesus. At a moment in time, so quick, in the twinkling of an eye, That when the impossible is made reality, somehow the brokenness of our bodies will be undone and we will receive glorified bodies. So let's talk about what this word really means, this word glorification really means and why you can't afford to get it wrong. So this is our error when we talk about life after death. We tend to make it about us. When we talk about life after death, we tend to make it about us. So we talk, we ask questions like, who will I see there? 
What sorts of things will I own? What will I get to do? And Jesus actually tells us that there's some level of ownership in heaven. There's some level of work and responsibility in heaven. Like we understand those things, but we're asking questions that are, are me-centered. So where will I live? What will I get to do? What will I become? All of these things. And um, these are all great questions, but all of these questions miss the point of glorification. Here's the truth of glorification. It is absolutely all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Glorification is about you experiencing in your physical body the reality that God wins. We simply receive the blessings of Jesus' victory. You know, I don't know what our future bodies will look like. I imagine to some degree that we'll take our cue from Jesus, but I do know this. In glory, when we have our future bodies, every time we look at what God has won for us, every time we see the effects of sin eradicated in our physical existence, every moment we go about without some sort of disease or gene mutation or missing limb or addled mind, uh, every time we remember these glorified bodies, our hearts will have no choice but to erupt in praise and giving glory back to God, to truly say in worship of the risen Jesus, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? So um, I've not really come close to seeing the full effects of sin carried out on my body, but many of you in this room are either walking with someone through the pain of a real experience of a perishable body, or you yourself experience on a day-to-day basis what it is to have a perishable body where the effects of sin can be observed. And how joyous will it be on that day when you can say the perishable no longer has a hold on this body. Jesus has won the victory. You see, glorification happens to us. We get to experience it, but it gives God all the glory. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Village Church, because Jesus won, we win. Because Jesus won, we win. Okay, so what? Why can't I afford to get this doctrine wrong? This is why. You cannot deny glorification and still get the gospel right. You can't deny it and get the gospel right. You see, glorification is the final realization of the reality of the gospel. So the gospel at its core is the story of God's victory over sin, Satan, and death. And the key effect of sin is physical and spiritual death. So the gospel is realized in every single one of God's people gaining victory over death and glorified bodies. So to deny this is to deny that the gospel has any power or effectiveness. And this is why Paul says in Romans 1.15, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. So that's uh, why you can't afford to get the doctrine wrong. The next question is this. In light of this hope, what will you do with your body? In light of this hope, what will you do with your body? The Corinthian problem was that they did not value their bodies. They were in sexual immorality. They were involved in drunkenness and gluttony and all of these things. They said it doesn't matter what you do with your body. But if our bodies are actually intended for something better, then it matters greatly how we steward them right now. So, in every way you can, give your body to God now, and he will give you a better version at the end. In every way you can, give your body to God now, and he'll give you a better version at the end. This is the attitude of every single missionary every martyr, every person who is enduring suffering while looking to Jesus. They're saying, Lord, my body belongs to you now with the promise that you'll make it something better at the end. You see, we can tend to be satisfied with incremental steps of giving our bodies away to the Lord, giving ourselves away to the Lord. But glorification teaches us this. It says, give your body fully to the Lord in your battle with sin and your reward is greater. Give your body fully to the Lord in his mission to reach the lost. Your reward is greater. Give your body fully to the Lord in discipling others. Your reward is greater. Give your body fully to the Lord in remaining faithful to his name until death, and your reward is greater. Glorification teaches us that it matters immensely how we steward our bodies. I want to close with a, a story. There was an early church father. His name was Ignatius of Antioch. And um, he was actually one of the first well-known Christian martyrs. Now, understanding martyrdom, every time a, a Christian died as a victim of the Roman state, it actually served to help the expansion of the gospel. So that everybody around who was watching this Christian be martyred and watched them stay true to their faith until the very end, even though there was all this torture and things happening to them, that, that when people witnessed that, it was really, really powerful. People trusted in Jesus when they witnessed that. So, um, so to be martyred for Christ was an honor because it meant that people had the opportunity to, to prove that the power of the gospel is unwavering. So Ignatius, when he's reflecting on the possibility of his own martyrdom, he writes this. He says, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. Pardon me, I know what is to my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, let breakings and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. This is the power of Christ. The hope of what comes later is worth every loss that might come before. Would you pray with me? Lord, may it be so in our minds that the hope 
of the future that you have for us. Lord, would make this life worth any loss that comes our way because of our faith in you. Lord, would we know, would our hearts be welled up with anticipation of the day when we will realize in our physical bodies that death no longer has a sting, that it no longer has victory, Lord, but that you have the victory. Lord, help these things to sink deeply into our hearts that we might even more fully give our bodies over to you for you to steward them. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.